Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens, and this time through an evolutionary lens as well. This is the second portion of our conversation with Heather Hyde, who is the author of, the co-author with her husband, Brett Weinstein, of A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. And the book concerns itself with our current hyper-novel technological society that our evolved nature and inclinations can get very confused and misguided inside. And this book wants to bring us back to thinking about who we are, what kind of creatures we are, what kind of humans we are. Um, and in the last one, we talked uh, We talked about death. We ended on death. And um, I want to talk about the next most interesting thing, which is sex. Um, because <laughs> humans... Is, is that really how you rank order them, Josh? <laughs> I don't rank order them, uh, but I do say that the only things that... He, when it comes right down to it, at bottom... I think the only things that humans are truly, actually, perennially interested in are sex and death. Maybe food, too. Um, so let's talk about sex, baby. And let's talk about sex and gender. Um, I'm going to set this up. I won't go too long. Um, one of the concerns that I share on the show a lot... Um, is is also one of the things that has um, that that makes my perspective unpalatable to people who used to be in my circle of associates. I am I don't put a label on myself anymore. Um, I used to call myself a progressive liberal Democrat. I am absolutely not those things anymore. I won't go and say. I'm a hard right conservative or I'm a libertarian. I think the closest thing, and it still does not fit well, would be classical liberal in my outlook. Um, I am not a cultural American style liberal or progressive any longer. And when I was, there were a lot of topics that were not allowed to be talked about. And not really, in some senses, in the circles that I traveled in, not allowed even to be thought. Um, and if you did think them, you sure couldn't signal to anyone that you were thinking these unapproved and bad thoughts. And the biggest one had to do with sex-based psychology, the behavior of men and women. Typically, on average, not every woman, not every man, but in general. Let me throw this to you and, and ask for your response and you can carry it from here. I believe, if I'm wrong, push back on me. Or if I'm not thinking about it in the, in the right way, this is the time, this is where ideas get challenged and or agreed with. I believe that today we are in a period in the West, but particularly in North America, of unregulated and unconstrained feminized relational styles in public, in business, in politics, in uh, social discourse in HR, in universities, and in education. In education. Um, and I spent most of my life, I, uh, until six or seven years ago, I would have described myself enthusiastically as a male feminist. 
Of course, I do not believe women are in. I am not a feminist of any sort at all anymore. Of course, I believe that women are fully human, equal creatures, uh, you know, should be equal under the law, etc., etc., right? But I no longer hew to anything that is currently described as feminist because I think it's gone off the rails. But I spent most of my life believing what many people on the left believe, which is that we are living in an actual capital P patriarchy where women are this close to being chattel slaves and that almost no progress in women's rights has occurred since 1880. Maybe that's a little bit of hyperbole, but it's not very much hyperbole when you listen to the complaining both from professional feminists and the indignant outrage from prominent women who who have a platform whenever it is suggested that perhaps there's men's work and women's work and men's business and women's business, and we need to kind of have a discussion about that. So I'll shut up and give this over to you. How do you so see much it, big picture? There, there's so much to say. So you began with a premise, which was uh, roughly that we are experiencing, we are living through uh, a period in which the, the feminine, broadly speaking, uh, relational style is being, is, is driving decisions and conversations and, um, and sort of being in control. Agree with that premise. I, 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 think, I think that is true. Um, is, this is actually a, something that I've been thinking about since, since I was an undergrad. Um, what are the different, you know, what are the different ways of being male and female in the world? And like my undergraduate thesis was on the ways that female primates make their friends. Like what does friendship look like between females and non-human primates as different from what do male-male friendships look like as different from what do male-female friendships look like? You know, friendship isn't, isn't work necessarily, although you don't work very well together if you're not at least friendly. So, you know, friend, friendship needs to be the basis of, of most relationships. And because we are a sexually dimorphic species, and we're not nearly as sexually dimorphic as our closest relatives, we are moving in the direction of greater similarity Given that we can see that at the anatomical and physiological level, we can expect that that's also going to be the case at the brain level, at the behavioral level, uh, that we'll be coming into greater and greater alignment with one another. That doesn't, however, change the fact that there are different ways to be a successful man in the world and different ways to be a successful woman in the world, even if, even if you say nothing that doesn't have anything to do with reproduction is going to be different. I don't think that's true. But even if we gave them that, that's what? Just the risk of, and then cost of, and then joy of, station and lactation, which women can and most do experience, and women and men cannot ever <laughs> experience, um, changes relationship with, with, with risk, with sex, with babies, with um, how you want to spend your time. And I say this as someone who never had baby lust, who never thought I needed to be a parent, and who, who am. I have two children, and they're 18 and 16 now. And up until the moment of their birth, I thought, I'm very glad to be doing this. I'm interested at a theoretical level in the evolution of parental care, the evolution of sex roles, the evolution of all of these things. Never felt the need to have a child. And as soon as each one of them were born, it just changed. Did it really? Just it completely changed. You know, some women love pregnancy. A lot of women don't. I was in the yeah. really, really dumb category. Hated it. Like, really <laughs> hated it. Didn't do it at all. I wanted to be out playing Ultimate Frisbee, not 
like a whale. <laughs> um, but you know, as soon as they were born, it changed everything. And the thing that people say, which is frankly can't mean the same thing if you haven't experienced it, was the love you feel for your child is unlike any other love. It, 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 it must is. be. It, it, that, is, that just is obviously true has to be and you know i am i am longtime pair bonded and monogamous and my my you know my love is also my parents father and i mean my my children's father yeah. and uh, <laughs> my children's father really there's no doubt about that and you know the four of us are a unit and you know he loves them dearly as well but it's also different father it's just it's it's not the same thing Right. You don't. Yes. The father doesn't carry them for nine months and doesn't breastfeed. And it's just different. So what does that mean about um, about you know, the rest of the world? Well, we are still somewhat sexually dimorphic. Men mm -hmm. are still on average bigger and stronger. And there's lots of other ways that we're sexually dimorphic. And what that means is historically and still today, quickly, uh, the way that men will have tended to uh, deal with disagreement between each other, it will go physical more quickly and it's more explicit yep. like when it's w with language it's going to be more direct it's going to be like hey you that thing i don't agree what the hell and you know either you quickly resolve it or you take it outside right like mm -hmm. and you know mostly uh, in a, in a society especially densely populated where a lot of people live just you know cheek to jowl we can't really accommodate men always brawling and yes. it's easy it, it's easy to make laws against so the ways that male disagreement goes extreme it's easy to make laws against whereas when women disagree it's much more likely to be you know the language that i've used in some pieces i've written is um male this male male disagreement is more likely to be overt and female disagree female female disagreement is more likely to be covert yes it's more likely to be secretive behind the scenes i'm going to go i'm not going to talk to you who i have an issue with i'm going to go talk to your friend i'm going make, to i'm going to ruin your reputation and social standing rather than punching you in the face in front of your mates and okay is it easy to legislate against people punching each other in the face yeah is it easy to legislate against gossip and uh, social machinations? It's impossible. It's not just not easy, it's impossible. Yep. So, you know, at one level, of course, we would have the rise of the toxic version of female-female relationships uh, rising because it, we, we've mostly taken care of. And have we totally taken care of? Of course not. Will we ever totally take care of? Of course not. Male-male uh, toxic responses, right? Yep. Like it, in the non-toxic form, the covert and the overt both can work. And, yes. it, and and we run into trouble when we've got mixed sex groups trying to work together and the man is direct and the woman's feelings are hurt or the woman's not direct and the male, the is man frustrated. does something, <laughs> is frustrated or like does something else and the woman gets frustrated. It's like, I told you this. And the man's like, no, you didn't. Or I didn't get it because that's not how I communicate. So like, we do have to figure these things out for sure, right? Yep. It's the toxic versions Yes, are the problem. And the male toxic version is just as toxic as the female toxic version. Yep. But the male toxic version is largely visible. And therefore, everyone can agree like, yeah, that's bad. And actually, we've got laws against it. Or let, morals against it. Let me give you a toy model that I use. I'd like your reaction to it. This is this is a deliberate and conscious boiled down generalization. And it's not meant to be any more subtle than what it is. 
you talk about the toxic versions of femininity, the toxic versions of masculinity. As you know, one, the major lens that I use to discuss the world is cluster B personality psychology, narcissism, um, emotional instability and borderline personality disorder, psychopathy, these sorts of things. Um, in a nutshell, I would say one description, uh, one way to describe the ultimate toxic femininity, the ultimate, the ultimate toxic masculinity is the toxic woman is the conniving, emotionally unstable and histrionic borderline, and the toxic male is the malignant narcissist and psychopath who will kill, right? These are the extremes, it's almost like they, 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 and you can find people you because these people are real. People who have these personality disorders are, in fact, very real. We see them every day. And they do, to me, look like caricatures of the stereotype of the bad man and the stereotype of the wicked woman. What do you think about that? Um, no, I, I, I think you're right. The, the piece there that um haven't heard before is the idea that two of the primary diagnoses in cluster B. And this is like, I, I, I love your stuff and I'm somewhat familiar with, with cluster B um, outside of, of listening to you as well, but I'm not, I'm no psychologist. So you know, apologies if I, if I get this wrong or vague here, but I hadn't considered before that two of these diagnoses might actually be more or less sex specific in one direction and that the other two might be sex specific in the other direction. What I've thought, and I think we, you and I have talked about this off air a little bit, um, I had, when I was a professor, I had some, some students who were trouble. And uh, it took me a little while to figure out what I ended up concluding, which is that they were, it was, it was female cluster B. Yeah. Uh, and, and I thought at the time, oh, it's just not manifesting the way I've been told it manifests. Uh-huh. And, you know, and what, and you know, one of the things that is true, like one of the things that, and I, I still try to call myself a feminist, even though I agree with you that almost nothing that any of it stands for makes sense anymore. Um, but, but one of the things um, that I think the, the smart feminists you know, have right is, you know, we, we, are, we are downstream of everything sort of being assumed that male was the default model. Like, you know, if, 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 you, if you're going to do something in a female way, then that's different. And we may not even include you in our studies. We don't know if our drugs mm -hmm. work on you, like, you know, all this, right? And like, this, this is known. This is true. It is. And, and I, think, I think that that is a feature of, of our understanding of cluster B as well, where, you know, we have, you know, okay, the psychopath in prison uh, who's a serial killer, that's not a woman. It's almost always a man. Yeah. There's like one or two such women we can ever remember. Right. And of course, I mean, this is a separate topic, of course, but, you know, the trans rights activism garbage now is further confusing our ability to make sense, because unless you're actually keeping track, some people now believe women are pulling this kind of thing. Some people uh, believe, women, I'm women, sorry, say again, people believe what? Women are pulling this kind of thing. Oh, women are arsons. Women are, you know, are, are raping. Women are doing, women are murdering. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, at a large, at a, at, a, at a high level. It's like, no, yeah. actually, look at the picture. That's not a woman. Yeah, Could we stop? <laughs> you, I know. Could stop we, it. Please stop. Stop it. Yeah, stop the bullshit. Um, and because it's, it, it, it confuses our, it, it's part of what is down, it's part of what is confusing lots of people who aren't really tuned in. 
they all yeah. begin to hear, oh, did you hear they just, um, what state was it that just executed, executed its, yes. air quotes, first woman, right? Wasn't a woman. It was a male rapist who stalked his ex-girlfriend, um, stabbed her to death, then raped her corpse and left it by a river. I remember this case when it was new. I remember listening to it on some of my true crime investigative podcasts. I could not believe when I opened up, quote unquote, the newspaper online and I saw this bastard being described as a woman. And NB- and it was NBC I saw it on first Big, bold, um, emotion-grabbing headline. State said to execute first transgender woman in history. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, you people are insane. You are talking insanity. This is, you know, even this had been a person. If, if this had been someone who had been a trans, trans-identified male, which I, I think is going to be the way I start. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, if this had been a trans-identified male for 20 years, and during you know during the execution of the crime in question, which impossible, but okay, let's just like let's go into full fantasy land. <laughs> can at least begin to understand what someone at NBC might have been thinking, right? Yes. But this is literally someone who decided at the point that they'd been caught for doing one of the most heinous crimes that we can possibly imagine, and which is fundamentally a male crime yes it is but what i can do you know what i can do to get off here maybe or at least get some sympathy i can claim i'm a woman yep that isn't evidence of gaming the system if like if if one of our major news channels can't recognize the timing of that as a game on the part of the disgusting criminal then we are lost like we are what, lost. what can be obvious then I know. We're going to go to a break in a second, but I want to leave one thing on here, and we're going to pick this up um, afterwards because I think there's more to say about this. Um, you said a moment ago that, uh, you know, the um, the if you think of, of the, you know, the male typical crime, the uh, if there's going to be a serial killer, right, especially a psychosexual serial killer, that is going to be a man, right? That's like 99.99999% male. I'm, I'll give you what I think the other side is from female, because I think women have the corner on the market on the opposite end. Munchausen's by proxy, okay? And that's not Joshua Slocum's opinion. That's a fact. And I'm not going to actually well, – first of all, it's also a fact that every single adult person knows is a fact. They know it's right. But I can give you the numbers, and the numbers are between 95 and 97.6% of all known Munchausen's by proxy cases when a, uh, when a child is made sick for the attention of the caregiver. It is the mother. This is a woman's crime. And, you know, if we can deal with the, if we can accept the fact that when men go wrong in this particular way, they end up being Buffalo Bill, and many of them do. Yeah, I'm making that reference to Silence of the Lambs. Even take the transgender shit out of it. Um, if you got a rapist and a serial killer, it's going to be a man, okay? But if you've got somebody who is sickening children uh, for her own narcissistic gratification, it is going to be mom. That's just the way it is. Uh, and we have, and, you know, and again, I you don't have to sign on board with this with me, but I'm going to state it and then we're going to take a break here. I think we have got to wake the the hell up about this 
transing children, accepting the cases, accepting and bracketing the cases where parents have been hard, hard maneuvered into this, where they've tried to stop it and they can't. I recognize that that is real, okay? Um, But I'm bracketing them. Absent that, transing children is Munchausen by proxy. It's not, oh my gosh, as people say, oh, it's so similar to that, or oh, it seems very, no, 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 it's not so similar to that. It is that. And if we cannot see that, if we can't see a parent deliberately sickening a child this way and claiming it's because they're caring and loving the child to bring them back to health, then we're really lost. And with that, we're going to take a break and pick it up on the other side. a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. Welcome back. Heather, I'm hoping that we can stay on the topic of um, sex roles and and the view that, that feminine relational styles are ascendant right now because uh, I believe... It, I believe it is one of the very serious social problems that is not being properly addressed, and I think that it has to be part of a change away from the insane world that we are calling woke right now. And I have difficulty with it to some degree because the sorts of things that that I say and talk about on this show sound absolutely nothing like the man I was when I was 40 years old. I'm 48 now, okay? I have lost... During the the time from then and now when there were major changes in my life, when I woke up finally to the fact that, yes, I must say this, and I know it's a drinking game for disaffected listeners, when I woke up to the severe cluster B derangement of my mother um, that was making my life unlivable, um, that's not the only thing that changed. My politics changed and my view of human relations changed because I had an opportunity for the first time to think outside of the paradigm that had been enforced in my family. What I see now is it seems to me that we are living in a world where we are socially required to pretend that obvious things that we have always known about men and women until yesterday are no longer true and it is absolutely ridiculous ridiculous to think that anyone ever believed them and if they did you know they should never have walked the earth because what a cretin you are can we talk about some of the things and there may be reproductive strategies behind this right can we talk about some of the things that we're supposed to pretend are not female typical and i have a list 
We are supposed to pretend, I perceive, that these are not female typical strategies and that they are not common to women in certain contexts. Coyness, coquettishness, flirtation, passive aggression and implication rather than direct confrontation, and hot, cold behavior. Those were just some of the ones that I could think of. Mm. Over to you. Yeah, so coyness, coquettishness, uh, flirtatiousness, yeah, of course, honestly. Um, passive, aggress- passive aggression, I think. I, I also believe, though, that I don't totally know what that means. I think okay. it gets misused and that I don't I have so a, a okay. totally clear understanding of what it is. And then the final thing, you said hot, cold behavior. Um, Particularly in mating situations. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I certainly, certainly I know it happens. And I, I, I'm not just, I, I will agree that that definitely is something that I think women are more likely to engage in, in a mating situation than men. I am trying to figure out what I didn't say was that I was answering with coyness, coquettishness, flirtatiousness. Yes, that's true. And I know that in part because I understand why evolutionarily it would be true. And I don't have an answer to the hot, cold thing. I don't, okay, well I don't then let's, get why that would be the case, but I think it is true. Okay. Uh, let's, well, let's talk. Uh, that's, that's what I want to get to because I, you know, as a, as a lay person, not as, as a biologist, I can, you know, and with your help <laughs> reading, you know, reading books like yours, I can make what I think are some pretty reasonable guesses about why these might be mating strategies. But let's talk about it. Why might they be? Let's stick with coyness, coquettishness, and flirtation. Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, one of the things that will come down to is sperm is cheap. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is, honey. (laughs) So um, sperm is cheap. Eggs are less cheap. And that's true as of something between 500 million and 2 billion years ago. Okay. Um, And, you know, sperm, not exactly, but, you know, the two different reproductive uh, strategies, which is to say the two different gametes, which is to say the two different sexes, uh, show up something between 500 million and 2 billion years ago. And once you have that different investment in reproductive in gametes by the two sexes, then you can get positive feedback. And I'm not, I'm not fully comfortable with this explanation, but this is sort of the standard evolutionary biology explanation um, for why you end up getting the evolution of greater and greater investment uh, in reproduction uh, by females, not just humans, but by females in general, yep. and a move towards basically um, an evolution towards taking advantage of, gaming of, getting around uh, the guardrails that females put up by males. And so in, you know, in mammals, of course, we have the evolution of mammary glands of, and of pregnancy in placental mammals, and actually in marsupials as well. And once you have those things, boy, there's just automatically a lot more investment uh, for a woman than for a man in terms of what could possibly happen downstream of any given reproductive act. Everything is different if you know that the person that you might be making a baby with is going to stick around and participate in uh, taking care of you, taking care of the baby, um, helping provide shelter, food, love, you know, all of these things, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we do have, as I, as I said earlier, we do have a move, evi- lots of different lines of evidence of humans moving towards uh, greater monogamy in terms of a reduction in sexual size dimorphism, for instance. That's just one of the pieces of evidence. But, uh, but that isn't to say that everyone on the planet does, hasn't had, you know, if they've, if they've been sexually active, they've had some sex that isn't in the context of a monogamous relationship, pretty much, pretty much everyone. Right. Yep. So there's exploration. Uh, there is learning what this is. There is, you know, there is there is play before you find your life partner. All of these things are true. Um, but that play or if you've decided oh, monogamy isn't for me, this is what I'm going to do forever. That, you know, lifestyle choice inherently has greater implications and greater risks for a woman who might get pregnant and then might get saddled with a kid or might have to make a choice about terminating the pregnancy. Like either, you know, any yeah. of those outcomes are hard. And, and involve risk and involve resource and involve time. And like, it's just, it's hard. Whereas if you just, if you just met and you hooked up and you had sex and then you never saw each other again, the way that, you know, most frogs do it and some humans do it, um, there's no implications downstream for the guy. You know, maybe he gets a knock on a door nine months later, but usually that doesn't happen. Right. So, yeah. oh, here's, you know, here, your dad, like, no, that, yes, we all know stories like that, but it doesn't happen much. So why does it behoove a woman evolutionarily to be more choosy about who she has sex with and to have that choice emerge sometimes as coyness, as coquettishness, as flirtatiousness, as like basically, are you serious? Are you serious enough that if this happens, the risk that I am taking that is so much greater than the risk that you, dude, are taking um, will end up being having been a right choice for me? It's so... To me, it is so it, it is so obviously sensible, right? I mean, of course, it's possible that it's possible that you and and everybody else in the field is extraordinarily misguided. There's a small possibility that none of this is even happening, right? I but but seriously, in the real world, it just makes so much sense. It's not. It doesn't seem to me. It doesn't seem to me difficult um, to see how that plays out mechanically, and it it's. I wonder if this ties into something that you and Brett addressed in uh, um, in other portions of the book, particularly the – okay. It, it is only in a society like ours, which is an extraordinary – it is the most comfortable and luxurious – way of living that humans have ever had access to. Even our poor people are not poor as compared to any reasonable definition of poor um, historically. And I'm talking about in the West, right? Right. I realize there are still people who are literally actually starving. There's nobody starving in the U.S. unless it's by choice, right? You might go hungry a little bit, but even our poor, even our panhandlers have phones in their pocket. And frankly, some of them are morbidly obese. So it it wasn't until really recently that you started to look at really, really big people and say that they were desperately poor. Something's out of whack here. And I think it's our perceptions. And there was... It's also our food. Yeah, yes, yes, it is. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, it's our food. You said, um, and in in the portion of the book where you were talking about 
the hands-off parenting, the outsourcing of parenting to the public school system, the parents sheltering children from direct experience of the real world, right? Wonderful. I, I must find this because it was so well written. You said, okay, quote, if you have not thrown or caught many balls or used hand tools or laid tile or driven a stick shift, in short, if you have little or no experience with the effects of your actions in the physical world and therefore have not had occasion to see the reactions they produce, then you will be more prone to believe in a wholly subjective universe in which every opinion is equally valid. I believe that's that's part of the explanation that you offer for how we have gotten to a place where we can pretend that things we all really kind of do know are true about men and women suddenly aren't true and can simply be decided to be non-existent. And I, I do think this is one of the fundamental problems with with the modern West, is that uh, the privileged class largely believes that physical work is beneath them, and so they even expect their children to do physical work. And those who do are have questions asked of us, like why 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 is he handling a shovel? Like it's going to be necessary to know what happens when you use a shovel. Because even if the shoveling itself isn't necessary, knowing that you have physical impacts with that thing that you cannot negotiate away means that you know now that there are things in the universe that don't depend on how you feel about it. And furthermore, I do think that this maps on imperfectly, for sure, precisely, um, to the discussion of, of sex roles. That uh, you okay, there's a dude. There's a man, there's a woman, and we've got a whole bunch of tasks um, that they're going to be choosing to engage in, and some of them are entirely physical tasks, and some of them are entirely social tasks, and then there's a mixture. And, you know, some men will choose a lot of entirely social tasks, and some women will choose a lot of entirely physical tasks. I would have been one of those. I, I would likely to be one of those women. Okay. But on average, right, on average across the population, men are more likely to choose Tasks that engage with the physical universe much more completely and therefore are more likely to know for sure that the, the universe is not a social construct and that they can't simply feel bad about it and have it change on their behalf. And if women are more likely to be choosing tasks that are entirely social, where you can change the outcome, you can change the perception of others based on your emotional valence, and that can then change your experience of it, and that can then go back and forth and back and forth. You can have this like positive feedback emotional thing, wherein the result is entirely opposite of what the result was before you guys got into some sort of like emotional match, then why wouldn't you have the sense? that some parts of the universe at least, and maybe all of the universe, are entirely socially constructed. I can change what other people do and think and believe based on my feelings. Okay, cool. That but example, some- I, and it's not true, right? But this is one more thing. The example that I think we have in the book and that I go to a lot is, you know, remember the Roadrunner cartoons? Yes. From, right? And, you know, it's hilarious. It's funny. It's, it's an unending you know, fight that never ends up in the death, except that Wiley e. Coyote dies over and over and over again and doesn't really die uh, because his prey item is too smart for him. Uh, but you know, the reason that <laughs> the reason that this is comes up now is you know the entire cartoon plays with physics, right? Like insta yes. coal, 
how hilarious, right? Like I'm carrying them all around. I'm gonna drop it, and by drawing the circle on the ground, he can now fall. In. Canned water, uh, canned water, just add coffee. <laughs> yes, it's perfect, right? Um, but but the but the place that this comes in here is when uh, the roadrunner will you know basically draw a coyote off of a cliff, and you know the roadrunner has better cornering capacity, so he can turn at the last minute, and the coyote skids to a halt but misses, and he's now six feet off the cliff. Fall until he recognizes that there's nothing below him, right? If gravity itself is a social construct, as if if you do not believe in gravity or do not know that it should apply to you, it does not apply to you. Now, in the 70s and 80s, when I was watching Roadrunner cartoons with my dad, we thought that was hilarious because, ha, 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 everyone knows that's not true. Right. But I some people actually walking around with that kind of model in their head now. Okay, yes. If I, don't, if I can't see it, it must not be true. It's 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 incredible. It it can't. I don't think the the explanation cannot fully be, um, like if we say of of women, if they if they if they're if they're making their living, their social living in by changing the outcomes around them with their emotional valence, as you said, and I think that's true. It can't be just that because this has been true. Women in the 1950s didn't believe that the world wasn't real just because it made them feel bad, right? <laughs> Something else is going on here. And, and of course, the men, too. I mean, it's not, it's not that it's only women who believe this stuff. It is, it is, I'm sorry, it is a fact that the overwhelming numerical majority of people who are actively pushing the trans agenda uh, the hard woke stuff. They are women. It is primarily women numerically. Even if we have some men who are occupying higher financial positions of power who are also doing so. Yes, we also have male confederates who be- who affect to believe this just as much as everybody else. I recognize that. But something else is going on. People, the them- predators who are taking advantage of it. Yeah, the cuttlefish. In other words, do you think? I don't recognize that term but the uh, the male predators being the the trans identified men okay who yeah put on lipstick and and walk into a women's spa it it, it isn't in, i i gotta find new vocabulary other than incredible and astonishing i don't know how to process it heather i actually don't know how to describe this i don't know how to think about it i never thought i would i did not think it was possible to meet women in the world who did not seem to have a self-preservation instinct the way I see a lack of self-preservation instinct among the very foolish young women who are literally trying to open the door to their locker room. I know many of them are protesting, but it's, you know what I mean? I'm like, I, I sit and look at it and I'm like, I see some of these very woke young women who are like trans women are women, trans women, you know, respect their pronouns, even if they're a predator. And I'm sitting there looking. And if I can get past my anger, because it makes me so angry, I want to scream, right? Because stupidity makes me angry. But I want to say to this young woman, listen, I know you hate me. I know you think I'm terrible. I'm the worst gay misogynist ever. I'm awful, awful, awful. But I don't want you to be raped. And what I'm telling you is even if I don't like you, this guy is going to get you. This guy is Buffalo Bill. Wake up. Do you understand how much danger you're in? 
I don't know how to process this. I don't either. And I do think related to what we've been talking about, but maybe maybe slightly different, is exactly saying a loss of a self-protective instinct Mm -hmm. that it was I understood at the point that I came of age and suddenly got looked at on the street all the time Mm -hmm. responsibility and I I, like if something bad happens to me and I was both smart and lucky and nothing bad ever happened to me but you need to be both right lots of smart people lots of smart young women bad things happen to them um so I was both smart and lucky and nothing bad ever happened to me. But the idea that the choices that you make impact on outcome because that's mean and that's unfair and the universe doesn't put men in that position and therefore why should I have to care? Sorry, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And we can start at the shallow end of the pool and say, don't alone at night while drunk in a neighborhood with lots of known single men, okay? And go to the deep end of the pool and say, what you are wearing and what you are communicating to other people. And no, it is never okay for someone to put their hands on you without your permission, ever, never. Some people will anyway. And some people will choose to be more likely to choose to, if they have convinced themselves, even if they're insane, but if they have convinced themselves based on being able to see more of your flesh than they can see of the other person, that you are somehow interested, I don't care that that's an insane position for them to hold. You still have some agency. And if there are two people walking down the street, two women of, you know, if all else well, they're of equal attractiveness. Mm-hmm. And one of them is tottering along on four-inch heels, wearing almost nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, is dressed in shoes that she can run in mm-hmm. um, and looks attractive, but is walking with strength and mm-hmm. looking around. And so the woman in tottering on heels is also in, enmeshed in her phone. Mm-hmm. Who is the predator going to go after? Obviously. Now, saying who is the predator going to go after, Say saying she deserved it? No, she did not. Right saying she invited it. No, she did not. But into public, assuming that everything is going to be nice to you because everything is not going to be nice to you. Yeah. Um, This is probably a good place. Great point. Yes. Thank you. This is a good place to take uh, our last break. And when we come back from this, we're going to open it up to audience questions from our Discord members here. So stick around. for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. Welcome back. We're going to open it up to questions. And the first one is from Brent. Brent, what you got for us? For Heather. 
Hey, Heather, thank you so much for joining us uh, and hanging out. I wanted to ask you if you've ever thought about the evolutionary origins of psychopathy and like sociopathic traits, and if you have any thoughts on that. Thank you. Um, thank you for the question. Um, I think, you know, I'd be curious to know from Josh what he thinks about the distinction. I think I've heard you talk about it a little bit, Josh, but uh, as I understand it, um, the words are largely interchangeable, and often psychopath is reserved for the violent offender, sort of, you know, the, the extreme version and, you know, honestly, maybe the more the male typical version, uh, whereas sociopath is used for, for both sexes. Um, so, psychopathy, which seems um, simply uh, maladaptive in, in, in every regard, I think. Um, sociopathy, though, um, being uh, able let's, not... Oh, I, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, uh, let's let's make sure though. Th this one's a sticky wicket. We do need to we do need to define our terms. This will confuse people. Think th everyone has a bespoke definition of sociopathy versus psychopathy, and most people believe that they they are hewing to the definition, but there isn't the definition. So just tell people what you mean when you use those terms. I was. I was you would. You would define okay. sociopathy. As I would. I, if I were I you, I just stick. I would stick with antisocial personality disorder, or pick one. Pick one of them and treat them interchangeably. You don't have to distinguish between socio and psycho. Um. So. Um, as I understand it, uh, involves a an ability to, and you know, maybe maybe it's not facultative. Maybe it's obligate. This is a question for a different time, I think, but um, either an ability to or a compunction to ignore the needs of others and uh, effectively to not have theory of mind about what other people are, are doing and thinking. And, you know, it, it makes such people impossible to interact with. Uh, they, if they're good at what they're doing, uh, they can model sort of normal behavior well enough such that they can get in and then manipulative about what it is that they need, but um, there are circumstances in which being, certainly if it's facultative and maybe if, if an, maybe even if it's obligate, being a sociopath could be adaptive. And I'm thinking about business, right? I, I'm sorry, you you're thinking are, about what? If you are in an explicitly competitive marketplace in which the competitors aren't sort of fully fleshed real humans uh, to you, uh, you may be better able to make choices that will be good for you and your team. Uh, and you would be able to do if you were thinking about the impacts on all of the people on the other side. Reminder about the naturalistic fallacy, you know, I'm not justifying it, I'm not saying that's honorable or wonderful, but could it have been adaptive to not be considering the feelings of the other people, the impacts of what you're doing on other people in explicitly competitive situations? Yeah. And in the modern world, uh, you know, the fact that, and I, you know, I don't have the research at my fingertips, but you, know, you, you do find more sociopathic traits uh, in, in the C-suite uh, than you do yes. among sort of middle managers, right? So that suggests that this is a, this is a character trait um, that does allow you to advance uh, basically without, without having to pause to reflect about the impact on other people. Thank you. Uh, we, up next, we've got, um, 
Mr. X, what have you for us, sir? Oh, wow. I was actually going to ask another question, but then this was going to, this, what you just said made me real curious. But I'm going to ask my first question, which is, there was a term when I was reading some anthropology material called co-alpha, referring to monkey communities. And the idea is that when you have a monkey community where you have a ranking, the monkeys rank themselves, you know, from, let's say, one to ten, where you have the fives and above get to stay up in the tree, the fours and below stay at the bottom, the nines and tens are coveted for reproduction or the alphas, um, and that there was a group, a middle range group of six to eights that are the self-elected social police. And that they make sure the fours and below stay down on the ground. The nines and tens are coveted. They don't interbreed with each other. And when you were talking about how males and females may have inherited evolutionary behavior, but could it be society in general also has inherited behavior? And that what we're seeing with the church ladies from the 1950s and the woke today, and they're very similar, is that this is a... Uh, descendant from us being monkeys. And we have that one group of monkeys that are always that social police trying to police everybody else. And that's handed down through evolution. Um, the the primatologist in me uh, wants to start by saying that there are almost as many different social systems and ways of establishing and maintaining dominance hierarchies in monkeys as there are species of monkeys. So um, the particular system that you're describing, I'm curious what, you know, what species that was and whether or not it's actually as simple as, as they make it sound. You know, there are, we think of dominance hierarchies, we tend to think of linear dominance hierarchies. You know, there's, <clears throat> there's the top guy and then the next guy and the next guy. And then it's also true that if you've got um, you know, mixed, mixed sex groups, you'll have a separate dominance hierarchy among the females. And you know, who gets to be dominant is dependent on lots of different things, depending on species and depending on circumstance as well. That are there social police? Are there effectively social police? Those who will uh, enforce the status quo, the dominant status quo, uh, on behalf of those uh, above them in most societies and uh, and human societies. I think yes. I think. Um, you know, to what end? There's a question. You know, for monkeys, the question is going to be complicated by: Is this a species in which females tend to disperse and join the natal group of of, of males who grew up there the entire time, um, or do males tend to disperse and do you then end up with these, these like bachelor pods of you know roving, horny, single bachelor males who are looking to break into other groups? We've got both models in various human societies. So like we can learn a lot about um, what humans are doing by looking at primate societies, but it is a classic mistake of, frankly, anthropology to pick a species that we like and go, that's what we're modeled on. And you know, the, the one that's really common at the moment actually is humans are really related to both chimps and bonobos, the genus pan and, um, and chimps are as, you know, probably everyone listening knows, you know, pretty warlike. They actually, they'll like, they'll mail up on a monkey and rip it to pieces and eat it while it's still alive and screaming. And, uh, and they, you know, they, they actually, you know, Jane Goodall actually saw what she called war uh, at edges of, 
uh, at the edges of territories, and uh, they're pretty polygynous, and there's a lot of sexual size dimorphism, and there's a lot of rape, and you know, all of this. And then bonobos are, you know, less sexually sized dimorphic, and they're more peaceable, and they tend to do, like, sex for food trades, and they like to get off with whoever shows up. And in anthropology at the moment, it's sort of fashionable to be like, oh, yeah, we're much more like bonobos. Like, well, we're equally related to both. So um, we can't take too many lessons from the particulars of any primate society uh, that we can point to. What we can do is say, is there a, a reason in any social group to, um, to the status quo? And under what conditions would we expect those who are not currently at the top to want to enforce it? So yeah, there are going to be those who will want to enforce the status quo. And what, you know, the easiest explanation here is those who are enforcing the status quo who aren't currently on top are to get to the top. And trying to, you know, they're, they're both, they're trying to get to the top, so they're trying to impress those, you know, their so-called superiors in terms of dominance. And they're also trying to make sure that whoever's behind them stays behind them and uh, doesn't, you know, the, the, the winning and the losing um, are often triggered, uh, often, often, uh, often trigger similar endocrinological responses that then just mean something different going downstream. So there's, there, there, here, but is there is there some kind of universality to social leasing of dominance? Yeah, that's a short. Yeah, because that's that's the point I wanted to bring up was I noticed a lot of similarities between these two groups, and I'm wondering is we're thinking about it wrong, and it could it be that there's just a distinct group of people who always do this, and they just take the power structure de jure to do it. So in the past, it was religion. Today, it's woke. But those those are people we need to separately identify. I guess, so, uh, and maybe it's not inherently about where they actually are in society or where they are in, in a perceived hierarchy. Um, more about this, I am less likely to get kicked out of the group. All right, like, who? Who, who are the people, and unfortunately it seems to be a majority or at least close to it, um, who will always just follow along? As part of following along, they take it to be part of their job to enforce the following along. Like, am, are we going to make sure that we keep what we've got? Um, but anyone who is trying to make a break for it and who is saying, actually, no, like, not, mm, you're not a man and no mandates. And what are we doing here? Um, those people get policed into the, you know, the sidelines of society uh, because uh, because the social police, if you will, are trying to make a really tight group that doesn't that doesn't have weaknesses in their view. And of course, what they're making is a weaker group because it's ideological rather than based on um, actually thought and trying to figure out what is true. Okay, thank you. Great. Um, it looks like, Brentley, you've got another question. So um, let me, oh, did I click on a thing and make a wrong thing? I probably did. I could do uh, another question uh, if you want more questions, so. Uh, um. Yeah, uh, sure, sure. Mr. X, uh, one more from you, and then we are going to go to Brentley. Thanks. Oh, okay. No, well, I mean, Brentley wants to go, go ahead, but if, all right. 
So my other question was on the psycho the, the, the psychopathic mentality. You you were talking about uh, the origins of that, and could it possibly be that this is an actual reproductive strategy? Uh, in other words, when you're a cave woman um, and you're nesting, you need a bulldozer to take care of you. You need somebody who's going to go out and be that monster. And could it very well be that part of the evolutionary process is the desire for females to be attracted to that monster, to groom him with sexuality so he stays, but he does that dirty work for her so that she can stay insulated? true that's not saying it's not true uh, but i guess at first my thought was there's there's so many strong men who aren't psychopaths right there's there's a there's a lot of non-psychopathic ways to be yeah but that's the strength also but, comes from the ability to turn off that emotion that that empathy again we're into this like facultative versus obligate question right so this is just language from from biology around, uh, for instance, like pedomorphosis. Like if, you, if you're a salamander, do you have to metamorphose and become the adult form or can you retain your larval characteristics depending on whether or not it's better to be on land or water as an adult? So if you have to metamorphose, you're obligate. If you don't have to, if you can go either way, you're facultative. So if, if what you're arguing is facultative psychology in which um, within a pair bond or within a society, uh, person could have some set of traits that are clearly antisocial, um, always be directed outwards. Is there any adaptive value in that? Obviously, you know, the way I just framed it and the way that you set it up. Yeah. Yeah, there would be. Um, really, because if it's there and it could, it could get confused about where it should turn, um, you know, that's, that's a, a problem. Uh, I guess, that feels really regressive and uncomfortable for me as a woman uh, is the idea that I would want, you know, a man to just go fucking ballistic on one who slighted me. And slighted is different from tried. I'm I'm sorry. Can you repeat, yeah, can you repeat that last Heather? I know you can't hear it, but um we're starting to lose your audio a little bit. Okay, sorry about I'm that. I'm sorry. I know you can't control it. I just wanted to let you know <laughs> yes. we're we're starting to lose um some of your words. Yep. Um yeah, that uh uh you know, a man might go ballistic, might go, you know, absolutely ape shit on someone else. Uh, on another man on behalf of me because I got looked at the wrong way or was insulted feels wrong. Uh, but what about that same energy after an attempted rape or during an attempted rape? Yes. Yes, please. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> right. Uh, so, so this, this energy uh, needs to be in complete control to the degree exists. And I think part of what you're suggesting is that uh, the way that it can come under control is not just within the man himself, but perhaps in conjunction with the woman he's in relationship with. Oh, I, I, I think I think we can I think we can get to a model that actually makes some sense. Uh, right. It's 
Dr. Peterson talks about that, too, that men need to be able to turn that monster on, but then be able to turn it off. And it's necessary. You have to be able to do that. And I think that's one of the things we're missing right now in society is that men are being too submissive and backing off, uh, trying to just go along with the crowd. <laughs> and you have to be willing to no. you got to turn that monster on. You got to say no yep. at some point. And and this goes back to some of what Josh and I were talking about earlier. Um, every every of male aggression is now being regarded as toxic. That a man gets angry or fierce or wrong, considered uh, the you know the runway to to thing, and that's crazy. You know, that, that, that's insane and it's backwards and it's hard to emerge from. Like, it's hard, I imagine, you know, it, it's really hard to stand up to because there will always at this point be present some number of people watching. Uh, say, oh, look, it's out of control. Don't them, right? That's, that, that is a, a dangerous moment for society to be in when uh, so many of the men have become convinced that any display of power is uh, is a, a dangerous thing that should never happen. Yes. Okay. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think we're going to bring this to a close because Heather has been extraordinarily generous with her time. But I want to give you space to plug some stuff. What I did not mention to the audience, Heather, uh, is of course you and Do Brett. We... I'm sorry. Say again, Heather. Like it has one quick question in. He had he had one more question. Um, sure, sure. Go ahead, Brent. I was just going to ask, uh, given your evolutionary background, uh, do you feel generally positive or generally negative about the short term, uh, future for the United States and, and more generally about, you know, humans? And I've let you ask the question. <laughs> um, it's, it's bad. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's really bad. And, um, Seem like a not answer. Uh, I blew up in 2017. I was on sabbatical and I wrote a science fiction novel. And I've always wanted to do, and I did it, and it went to two drafts, and now it's sitting somewhere, and I would really love to get back to it. But um, I'm not going to go into the premise here uh, or, uh, or in really, except to say that even at that point, this was early 2017 when I was writing it. Um, I had this sense of like, it's going to get really bad and either we figure it out, then we can emerge into the landscape that I thought we were going towards in the eighties and nineties, um, or either we're gone or we're under the heel of something else. I don't know, but it, like, we, we don't progress. Like it's, it's not, it's not going to be good, but it seems like it's not, it, we're not going to hang out in this middling space for decade that we can it's not it's it, it just can't work and so the way that i dealt with this and my um in my session was i referred to vaguely to a sort of mid 21st century period of great reconstruction and now we are have arrived you know some number of decades later and we've got some cool tech that allows us to travel across the galaxy and here's what we're doing now and i i guess we're, we're living that black box at the moment and you know there's a lot of us trying trying to 
have the public conversation enough to get us out of it so that we don't end up either disappearing ourselves or you know under the boot of something that none of us want to be under uh, but it's certainly a challenge all right thank you thank you folks for the good questions thank you for being a champ and uh and taking them heather um, I, before we go, I do want to mention the part that I didn't before. You are also a podcaster because I listen to your show. People, Heather and Brett do the Dark Horse podcast. And if you have not heard it, you should. If this is the kind of conversation you like having, the two of them together are wonderful to listen to. Heather, where else um, can people find you and or Brett? So we do uh, we do weekly live streams of Dark Horse and on Saturdays at noon thirty Pacific time, and also hosts guests uh, of of other sorts on Dark Horse podcast. We of course have the book that you read, Josh, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the Twenty First Century, of which we are very proud. It's the fruits of um, a good couple of decades of thinking about evolutionary biology and teaching it to undergrads. And I also write weekly at Natural Selections. That's my Substack. And this week I wrote about uh, censorship. Last week I wrote about salmon. It's all over the place, um, but it's all it's all with an evolutionary lens. Excellent. Hey, Heather, this has been fantastic. Thank you for your time. Gosh, it's been wonderful. Okay, that's it, folks. Thanks for joining us for Disaffected. <laughs>